hello, beautiful. And what I really want to know is what is good in your life today? This is Kia, and this is the season premiere, season six premiere of the Female Veterans Podcast. And before we get started, I just want to say thank you to everyone who has been supporting this little vision of mine, this journey I've been on to provide a space for us to share our stories and to let the world know that we are out here and we're doing things and we're supporting each other and we're here for each other. So thank you for that. And I have a really special guest with me today. This one is kind of a big deal. And the reason why it's a big deal is because it's another example of how, you know, queens straighten each other's crowns, how we stick together as female veterans, no matter what, we're always family. And that community is something that I am so, so proud to be a part of and to be able to share it with all of you. So my guest today is Taniki Richard, and she was in the Marines as a sergeant for 11 years, which is pretty amazing, in my opinion. That's a long time. I don't, I couldn't have done 11 years. I know there's like 20 plus years. My little young self couldn't have imagined it. <laughs> so anybody that has served more time than I did, I'm always in awe of that. I think it's pretty incredible. But not only that, okay, she is a speaker. She is a coach. She is a radio host. She is the founder of JT Inspire and has written this amazing book called The Principles for Change, Three Keys to Overcome Trauma. And it's from his and hers perspectives, which I think is incredible and unique because her husband is also a veteran, right? So to have both of those perspectives is just, it's brilliant. Okay, so go get that book, all right? You will not, not regret it. Okay, so their company is an entertainment and media company, and they provide speaker services and hosting and webinars and sponsorships. I mean, this girl is doing so much. I am just so happy that she came to be on my show and hang out with me today. Not to mention, she has been awarded with like everything everything. I'm talking about the 2020 Veterans Trailblazer of the Year for Women. She's an avid writer. She writes poetry and she has her own show, right? So pursuance straight out of the box. So check that out because it's for us, right? And um, we got to show love everywhere to all of our veterans, brothers and sisters trying to hustle and do the good work for us, for each other, right? So You've been active in Hollywood, Taniki, and I want to talk to you about that. But you guys, you hear everything (laughs) that she's been doing. She's been very busy out here hustling, doing all these incredible things as a female veteran. And I really feel like it serves as an example of what's possible when you do your healing work. Okay, so we're going to get into it. And I want to say welcome to Niki. It's a pleasure to have you with me today. 
It is amazing to be here with you, Miss Kia Baker. Oh my goodness. I'm so glad to be on your show. It's amazing. I've listened to quite a few episodes. And so I'm like, oh, I can't wait to get on her show. And, and, and here we are. I love that you said us, you know, supporting one another, podcast host to another podcast host, veteran to another veteran, woman mm-hmm. to woman. You the mm-hmm. bomb girl. <laughs> As are you, my dear. As are you. you. I am thrilled to have you with me and I cannot wait to hear your story and find yeah. out more about you and share that. So my first question for you is what made you join the military? I love that question because... I had complex reasons why, you know, different reasons. The main one, I'm going to say, I had two. So I'm going to just give you two. The main reason back in the day, I grew up really poor. And so second oldest of seven, my parents were from the Caribbean. They came over to America when they were younger, had a bunch of children, joined the army. And then upon them getting discharged from the army. My mom did about six years. My dad did two. And back then you could do about two years and that was considered one full term. Or at least I think that was some type of option to do that. But they fell into hard times when they got out. They went into drugs. Uh, We moved around a lot. And my household was very abusive. So for me, having the feeling of responsibility to my family, wanting to always step up and take care of them, making sure they eat, making sure they shower, being the second oldest. I mean, I I saw my little sister born. So they were like my kids to me. And so I felt like I had a drive or a reason to, to join the military and to do something with myself so that I could send money home. And that I so I could make sure that they were still good. So for many years when I joined the military, I always had that chip on my shoulder or responsibility. It was a a huge burden. It was a huge burden that I felt as a young person I shouldn't have had to bear. But just because of my personality and character, I took it on. I joined because I wanted a way out of the hood. There was one point where we were on Skid Row. And so if anybody knows what Skid Row is, it's like, I don't know if you ever seen that movie, Kia, uh, Little Shop of Horror, when they sang that yeah. song, Down mm-hmm. on Skid Row. Yeah, that's where we were at in California. And so it was hard for me to really leave home, but I knew I had to in order to make a better life for myself. I wanted better. And then so I joined. And of course, I wanted to see the world. I had traveled a lot because we never stayed in one place for very long. I went to like six different high schools, but this time I wanted a new experience. I wanted to to see the world in a new way with money in my pocket and a new experience. I had a job career. So there was so much things that were beneficial to me joining the military. When I was receiving those things, I felt like, wow, I finally made it, you know? So that was a, a huge reason why. You know what? I identify with so much of what you said. That could have been my story, right? I mean, granted, I grew up in West Philadelphia and we weren't in the poorest of the poor neighborhoods, but on the outside, everything looked beautiful. But on the inside of the home, things were not as they should have been. You know, I was was in foster care for a period when I was very young, three. And by the time I came home, 
my mother had taken up with a high school sweetheart who was Vietnam veteran and he was not healed, we'll say. So yeah. it was very dysfunctional. I was going to say off his rocker. But I mean, it was, <laughs> we got <laughs> I will often say it can be like this. <laughs> I will often say that I was raised by two people that had mental health issues. I will say so it was hard. And I have a little brother who I saw born and I was actually uh, the first person aside of his parents to hold him ever. So to me, he was my baby. He was, I had begged for him and my mom finally came through. And so when I left for the military, I was escaping too. I mean, the di- like I also grew up in private school. So I had, that was my first way out, but I was home on all the holidays and in the summer. And so I was back in. So I was living this sort of dual life and I just needed that to end. <laughs> like, so yeah. my mom was the catalyst for me joining. But once I did join, I also had to send money home. And I actually helped my mom pay off her mortgage. And I ha- I would bring my little brother to come to me every Christmas. I would fly him or whatever I had to do to bring him to me to make sure he got Christmas because I wasn't sure if he would get one. So I, it felt like a burden. I feel that, right? I yeah. really feel that. But at the same time, I was very proud to be able to yeah. do that. And the military gave me that too. So I yeah. feel that answer a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Thank um, you. I, I I appreciate you for that. Yeah, for sure. You see, it's like there's so many common bonds between those of us who join, you know, and actually the reason I asked that question is because I'm interested in knowing what the catalyst was, how many of us were trying to escape something, how mm-hmm. many of us were trying to just find a better way of life for ourselves, or was this part of a family legacy or what is it? I'm just curious. And that's why that's the first question, actually. Um, I'm glad because I think it's important to know on that common base and that common ground, you don't have to know your whole story, but if you could just understand and feel that responsibility just from those details, then right there, we're all automatically bonded. And I know the third one, I'll I'll throw in the third one just because I actually had a dream of being one of the first to go to college in my family and to to finish school. My mom did some college and she always said she wished she had finished. So I think, you know, in a sense, I was trying to accomplish something that um, she didn't. And I took Mm -hmm. that on. I took her dream on for me. And um, I'm glad I did. Later on, many years later, I actually graduated college. But I think if I would have been more intentional for me, I would have gotten more out of the experience when I started Mm -hmm. going to college in the military. But I didn't have to pay for anything. Mm -hmm. And I know I knew my parents couldn't help me in that way um, at the time to pay for college. So military is always a good, I think, starting ground. It's a it's a wonderful way. I always say, and I tell young folks that I talk to in the JRTC program in high school that it's a wonderful way to get you started right away. So right into boot camp, you're already saving money because you're not spending it. You're going you you're getting yelled at. You're getting push ups. You're getting uh, trained, and your body's getting shaped into what they the military wants it to be. And in the meantime, you're collecting a check. So if you're thinking about in that way, then yes, it's a great way to start getting stable right away. And so that that was for me being poor, growing up in the ghettos, shootings, uh, killings, Mm -hmm. and 
lots of violence. I was like, well, I mean, it couldn't be any worse than what I'm going through now. But oh, was I wrong? <laughs> oh, we're going to get there. But I, I will say another point you just made when you, you were sort of living a dream for your mother. My mother's dream had been to be in the military. And she also said as her selling point for me to go, which I really had no choice, but <laughs> her oh, selling point for me to go was that it would make a firm foundation for me to start my life. And that's what you just said. And that's what you teach people. And that's what my mama taught me. Yeah. So, and she was right. I'm not going to lie. She was right. It is. So, I mean, hey, it's not the perks. There's perks to joining the military. We, we sacrificed. We've suffered some, but there are some really great perks when the risk and the reward vice, you mm -hmm. know, civilians and what they have to go through. It's very different. So tell me, what was boot camp like for you? <laughs> wow. It was a shocker. I thought being that I grew up in an abusive home. I mean, you get smacked in the mouth every chance yeah. you got. And so <laughs> I was like, if I could deal with, you know, my dad straight cock holding, punching me in the face, mm. then I know they're not doing that at boot camp. So for me, I was like, bring it on, bring it on, whatever you got. It doesn't matter because I'm about to get out of this life. Yes. Well, when I got there, I didn't realize I was carrying a lot of like wounded childhood stuff going on. And when I got there, I didn't think they were going to be hitting you. And the first time I got hit, I was like, <laughs> this is exactly like home. Like, what the hell is going on here? We didn't and, get hit in the Navy. I, do, I don't understand that. <laughs> in the Marine Corps, <laughs> Corps bucket, when I was in, I think I was the last generation of the ones who didn't get to pull those stress cards. Girl. Don't pull the stress card on a on a Marine drilling circuit. They will lose it. OK, so, you know, for us, you, you can show that fear or hurt or woundedness that if you were coming, they didn't know my story. Mm -hmm. Those drill instructors didn't know my story. They were there to do a job, which was to get me to obey, willing obedience and to get the job done and to know how to follow instructions and rules and shape my body into a lean, mean fighting machine. I get it. But when they started hitting people, <laughs> let me tell you something. <laughs> I was like, um, I didn't sign up for this. Hello. I'm like, where's my recruiter? I want to go home <laughs> mm -mm. and look at me and look how the trauma is so deep, right? I'm ready to go back home where I'm pretty sure my parents would have beat the brakes off of me for failing. <laughs> and then instead of getting you know, uh, drill instructor brim to the nose when you look at them. You know, I went, I remember the drill instructor the first time I was in the chat hall line and she was just like combing the platoon. We were just combing us to see who would look at her. I was not aware that we weren't supposed to look at these drill instructors eye to eye. I actually came in on a historical moment, 9-11, happened and I didn't get to come in till about a week later. Well, you, if you know, in boot camp, I mean, it's so regiment, you know, you, you're a week behind, you're behind. So everyone's got the rules, but me, and I'm in the child home on the first day and she's combing like a shark in the, I mean, she's just looking for somebody to do something wrong. And I looked at her, you know, kind of like out of fear, but also like curiosity, like what's going on? And I looked at her, we locked eyes and it was almost like a pit bull 
<laughs> ready to gnaw on a bone. And I was just like, oh, cheese. <laughs> She came so quick in my face and took the brim of her hat. And that brim is sharp and and solid and hit me, bam, square in the nose. I immediately went blind for like half a second. And then tears just started rolling down my face. And she she creeped up on me like, what's love got to do with it? You know, I went to Tina and was like, if you die, I kill you. You know, it was one oh of those. Oh my movies. God. She, she went up into my ear and she was like, she's like, don't ever look at me again, ever. I said, oh snap, I'm getting abused in here, y'all. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> and that was my first introduction. <laughs> Stuff got real, okay? Fast. So when that happened, yeah, it got like real quick. And so when that happened, I was like, oh, Dorothy, you're not in Candace anymore. This is this is real life. Like you need to like get in the hood. See, when you're walking down the street, you're always on alert. Right. So I'm thinking I'm not in the ghetto no more. So I didn't have to have those guards up. But when that happened, it was kind of like, boom, my my survival instincts kicked back in. And I was like, oh, you're not in a safe space. This is not a safe place. So right then I. I think that's when I built, started to build uh, a, another type of chip on my shoulder. And I was belligerent a little bit, a lot of bit <laughs> in boot camp because I knew I was one of the most physically fit. I just was not a really great runner. I wanted to get through it and get it done. Didn't ask any real questions, but I think I stood out in front of the drill instructors in, a, in such a way that I don't know, I, I don't want to say I got picked on, but I think I was not strategic in playing the game. And so not playing the game got me on as cooler recruit. They punished me for the whole entire boot camp because they made me do push-ups and I did those. I knocked those out with an attitude, you know, like, so whatever. They made me hold my rifle up almost eight pounds. And I would hold it up proudly because I'm, I used to run track. Like I'm an athlete. You're not going to beat me down with physical fitness. Right. So they figured, okay, well, how can we get her a person like her? They gave me extra night duty. They gave me uh, maybe the cooler recruit. So anytime we would march anywhere, I would have to carry the heavy sheet and water and ice bucket. And when I tell you that thing was heavy, it would be soaking up my camis. <laughs> and that's how they got me. And I was that cooler recruit for the entire time. I remember I was so hungry because I had hips. I mean, I mean, I'm an indigenous, you melanated woman. I don't like to say black woman because do the research. I That's a different terminology. I know what black means to us here in the United States. But I'm just saying as a you melanated woman, I had hips. And I ran track. So I had those like those Jackie Jonah thunder thighs, you know. And so when we when being in the in the in boot camp, you had to be a certain size. And especially in the Marine Corps, there was no there was no lead way for you to be thick. So for me, they had me on rations. I was starving (laughs) and it did. I went in and I thought I was physically fit when I was done with boot camp. I was almost a size six. Okay. I went in like a size 12. (laughs) 
Wow. So I was almost a size six. And I looked amazing. I, I, I see the pictures back then. I'm like, man, if I would have only held on to that. But I was caught, and I'm giving you full disclosure here. I was caught along with some other female recruits getting food out of the trash can. That's how hungry we were. We, there were some Jimmy Deans that were in packages. And inside those packages, you could rip them open. There were cookies in there. There was like sandwiches. And they had me with this little din-din tray every, you know, lunch and dinner, these black little trays that had two scoops and you were done. So no wonder I was I was dropping weight. They had me carrying that heavy cooler everywhere we went in the hot sun in South Carolina, where the sand fleas just had their way with me. And so I saw an opportunity along with some other (laughs) female recruits who were also hungry to go into that trash can and get those cookies. So, (laughs) oh my goodness. When I tell you, now I prided myself being that I looked out for my family a lot. I wasn't a liar. I didn't want to be a thief. I saw my parents, you know, they always had some scheme going on with how they would hustle and get money. So I didn't want to be like them. So when we got caught, the drill instructors basically called us thieves. You bitches, you this, you that, you are just all these kind of things, right? And and I, I don't I choose not to cuss. I can cuss, but I choose not to cuss. But it was a very appropriate for this to explain what it was like, because, again, I went back to a wounded place. Right. When they were saying these things to me, I took it on as, oh, my gosh, they're calling me a thief. I'm just so low. And da, 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 da. and really, and truly, I was just hungry. <laughs> I mean, starving, freaking starving. And so. They went around telling the other recruits to shame us and had us sitting around in the circle in the middle of Squad Bay cutting out letters. You know, what's that movie? The Scarlet Letter? Scarlet Letter. See, (laughs) they had us cutting out T's instead of the A for adulterers. They had us cutting out T's to say you're a thief, right? And I refused to do it. So here's this rebellious me. I'm the only one not cutting out these tees. And the other recruit who was like a goody two shoes, she came around and and was saying, you need to cut it out. I said, let me tell you something. If you come over here and and tell me to do cut out this tee one more time, I'm going to punch you in the face. (laughs) And my drill instructor heard me. She heard me, overheard me. She was like, recruit Simon. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. Uh, what are you saying? You're not going to do it? I said, I'm not doing that. She said, I get in here, you know, get in there. Uh, so she put me in the closet. <laughs> she put me in the closet. And this is where my whole outlook uh, for boot camp changed. She put me in the closet. She said, recruit Simon, what's your deal? She was very calm. It was almost like she was a different person. And I said, this recruit, she said, no, 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 forget all that. Talk to me regular. You can say I. And I said, I came from a place and now I'm here in a place. I don't like the way it's going and I don't know how to change it. And so she said, you know what? You remind me a lot of me. I thought I was too cute to hurt. I thought that anything that could hurt me couldn't hurt me. And I struggled a lot 
in my career because I carried a chip on my shoulder. And then I kind of looked at her like, I don't have a chip on my shoulder. She said, oh, but you do. You have a chip. You have something to prove. She said, until you figure out what that is, you're going to struggle in, in the Marine Corps. And I said, well, I don't, I, you know, she's like, you don't have to think about it now. She said, but we'll, we'll be done with all of this. This is, this is done. She said, but straighten up. You have a lot more to accomplish in this world and you don't have time to carry those chips on your shoulder. And I was just like, I ma'am. And she was like, all right, dismiss. So turn around. Da, da, da. Things got better after that. A little bit better. <laughs> so I think I just from that talk and getting a chance to see that I had more than what was in front of me. I had more opportunity than what was actually in front of me to not go home a failure, not carry these things that I was already carrying from childhood into my new future. It was hard. I don't think I learned the whole entire lesson at boot camp, but I think that's it planted a seed and allowed me to kind of basically survive what I survived while up until I was actually discharged from the military. You know, sometimes it only takes one person to care enough to plant a seed and then somebody else comes along and waters it and so forth until your whole outlook and perspective and who you are at a soul level has changed. And you suddenly look around you and your entire reality changes along with it. It was a beautiful gift that she gave you for being as hard as she was. Now, I know that that was actually the one that hit me with the brim. I thought so. (laughs) I was going to ask you that. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I I know that Marine boot camp is hard. We all know that. Like the Marines was not even an option for me. I actually had, um, at private school, we had these, it was family style. So we had these sort of house parents that were supposed to be sort of pseudo parents that were role models for us. And on the weekends, they would have substitutes that would come in and relieve them, um, every other weekend so they could have the weekend off. And my substitute was a female Marine, a former female Marine in one of my student homes. And we were, she was a friend, uh, one of my friend's older sister. And I will never forget her stories about being in the Marines. And I just thought, oh my God, like only the most badass women go into the Marines, right? So when it came time for me to start thinking about going to the military, I was like, well, let's see. My mom wanted me to go to the army. And I was like, I'm not doing that. Uh, if I have to go to the military, which is completely not my scene <laughs> whatsoever, I was more like this happy-go-lucky hippie. And my friend, I just um, did an interview with her. It's um, my friend, Jana. You can listen to that episode if you go back through the episodes. She said in that interview, you were just always doing your own thing. And I had forgotten about that. Even in the military, I sort of had that same, I don't know, it made things trouble for me. Believe me, it wasn't uh, (laughs) the best choice. But fortunately, I didn't choose the Marines because I would have never survived that. I I mean, maybe I probably would have (laughs) because I tend to to tend to rise to the challenge uh, if I find myself in the situation. But as a choice, 
I, it was mm-hmm. always Air Force or Navy for me. And they certainly did not physically... <laughs> And I wasn't in the 90s. Okay, yeah. so this is before 9-11 happened. The stress cards came out for the Navy maybe the next cycle after I finished boot camp. So that was in 1994, 95. Wow. So for you to have gone in after 9-11 is my point, And they were still like physically beating oh, yeah. you. I, that just blows me away. I mean, they would pinch you, knock you on your arm, you know, stuff like that. I mean, they wouldn't just full out pop you. Yeah, but still. Yeah, they were putting your hand, they was putting their hand, or sometimes they would swing you around and, well, I got swung around and jacked up on one of the the sea bag trucks. Like, <laughs> I mean, hey, it, see, Marine Corps is a little bit different, but I will say this, I did choose the Air Force first. <laughs> my sister went to the army. Like I said, I was second oldest. So I had an older sister. She went to the army and I have another older sister, but she was, I didn't grow up with her. We reconnected later on in, in life, but she went to the army. And if you knew her, she was like a little bit of a girly girl. I was more of a, you know, Tom girlish, you know, <laughs> type of thing. And so I was like, well, my sister made it in the army. I don't think I want to do that. It might be too easy for me. But then I choose Air Force, <laughs> which is kind of, it's like, I, I, I'm not going to talk about my Air Force people because my brother, he is in the Air Force. I, I love, I have a couple of friends in the Air Force. But when you try to compare the physical challenge, it's, it doesn't compare. So I actually picked the Air Force because I was seeking uh, college opportunities and those type of things. I I didn't know what I wanted to do, but when they turned me away because they already had their quota and Air Forces, the in California I went in to the recruiter station right out of Fullerton, California. Right, I I, I grew up in all over SoCal, but Anaheim was where we ended up living, right down the street from the uh, Mighty Ducks hockey team, and so. Being there, they turned me away. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, yeah, come back later. They weren't enthused. They were like, all right, whatever. And uh, I think the recruiter that picked me up from the Marine Corps, he kind of stuck his head out of the hallway and heard what was going on. He was like, are you trying to join a military branch? I was like, yes, sir. He was like, step into my office. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, And that's honestly, that's how I chose the Marine Corps. It wasn't, I think somebody could say it was destiny. It was chance. What have you? I'm glad it was the Marines. I don't regret being uh, a Marine. I just think that maybe I would have stayed in longer and did the 20 years that I truly wanted to do. I wanted to go officer enlisted to warrant officer. I wasn't done. I don't think I felt like I was finished. I loved pulling up my bootstraps and tying my 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 laces around my camis and putting on my cover buttoning up my blouse rolling my sleeves mentoring sailors and marines i i loved it and i i think it was hard for me to come to terms with my career being over so short i wanted to retire and I saw the the silver lining in things because I was medically retired after a couple of years after my experience in Iraq. And my goal was to retire. 
being that I did get a opportunity to retire, even if it was medically, to have those that permanent benefit was a silver lining. But I think it took me many years to come to that conclusion. And I'm glad that I did and I have peace with it now. But I I I would have loved to continue my journey on as a Marine and mourning the person I was 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 necessary for me to move on, to become who I am today. So I think that my time in the military was cut short. And I still do. I still do, but I just don't cry about it now. I just I just know that had I been given the opportunity to do it over. I think I would have made some better choices for me and not necessarily from a wounded place. And it happened that way because I wasn't ready to face those wounds. And it just kept piling on and piling on and different situations that happened throughout my career was just an extension of my childhood trauma, an extension of me being raped earlier on while being in the service. And then having to deal with the trust issues I had from the uh, combat experience I had in Iraq, where I felt like the Marines that I entrusted my life with on the aircraft put my life in danger when I wanted to go home to my son. And so I was angry for a long time about certain different things, again, piling on those chips on my shoulder, that towards the end of my career, when it became too much to bear. I, it almost broke me and it did break me actually. I I went into a place where I wanted the pain to end more than I cared about my kids, more than I cared about my friends, more than I cared about myself. And I wanted to end my life and I attempted to by crashing into a light pole right outside of the Marine Corps Air Station. Now, no one could have known that I would do something like that, mainly because in my mind, I was crying out for help. But high in sight, now the healthy me looking down at the wounded me, I don't think I was advocating for myself enough. And I didn't know how to, because in the Marine Corps, they don't teach you how to do that. They tell you to suck it up, buttercup. Absolutely. And or have a nice cup of, (laughs) a nice hot cup of shut the F up, Mm -hmm. right? That's so, the military way right there. It's it, And they don't care about you in the sense of that's your personal stuff. Deal with mm-hmm. your personal stuff. But when you come to work, you put on that uniform, you better be about the mission. You better be about completing the mission. And if you are hindering the mission because of your personal stuff, then they cast you aside. You're a turd. You're this, you're that. Mm-hmm. They don't care about what you got to do. They just want to know what's the results. Are you good? Are you good to go? Are you operational? Because if you're not, we're going to have to sit you down somewhere and fill your spot. And that means you're a dead weight. And so I think that mentality or where I needed, where it became the burden of carrying these emotional pains became too great, where I think that is what broke me was the lack of support and understanding. I think had I been able to be in a safe space to actually talk about those things without repercussions or judgments, then I would have been able to take the time to 
get the help that I needed in order to stand up again and take some of those that weight off my shoulders to where it wouldn't break my back. And then I could carry on with the mission. And so I I think getting out, I wanted to dedicate my time to getting well just so I can come back to the military and help that atmosphere and that environment, that mentality change because we're losing so many good Marines, sailors, soldiers, airmen to this ignorance about you get to be a jerk to someone who is struggling mentally and emotionally because of the mission. No one, that's not in the Mara admin. That's not in the POAM. That's not in the Operation Mirandum. Okay, so where are we getting this attitude to say we're casting Marines and sailors and soldiers and airmen aside after they've come back from war, hell and back. And then you say, well, you know what? The, the This affected this Marine differently. And now look at you, you're a piece of crap. You're a turd. So what's what's wrong with you? And that And that's not fair. It's not right. And it's almost like leaving your battle buddy behind. We don't leave anyone behind on the battlefield. That's what we're trained to. That's ingrained in us. You leave no man or woman behind on the battlefield. But yet and still, we have Marines coming back. We have military members coming back from war, seeing things that they never experienced before and getting involved in things that they've never seen before. And then telling them, suck it up, buttercup. And when they can't, the ones who can't do that are need an extra additional support. They need an attaboy, like somebody to help them out of that dark place. They say, well, you, you, you're a turd. You, we got to push you aside. That's wrong. That's wrong on all moral levels. That's a shame to our country, to our brother, our fellow brothers and sisters to allow something like that to happen. Now, of course, I've been in. I'm a very practical person. I've seen, you know, malingerers. I've seen people, you know, who skate through. We call them skaters, yeah. right? We we yeah. know. And everybody at some point or some one point or the other has skated. I get it. You know, it's part of the <laughs> the 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 way our military is because we get a lot of free time if we if we need it. You get the mission done, you got a little free time. You can go to the gym. You know you're not working out for two and a half hours. <laughs> Come on now. I you was. Eating it two hour lunch. <laughs> and you probably work out for 45 minutes and you're going to take a nap somewhere <laughs> or run into the store or something like that. <laughs> you talking about you going to medical and you went <laughs> and stopped and got yourself something to eat. Okay. We know them skaters. <laughs> we know everybody has done everybody. it. Yeah. But absolutely everybody. Time. Yeah. You know, but there are times where you got to set aside and say, oh my goodness. My fellow brother and sister is struggling. What can we do to get them to help? And then encourage them and continue to encourage them to take the time out to mentally get themselves strong again. And uh, it, it does take time. You know, it takes time. But I agree I, I with think, you. Yeah. I agree with you. I, I, but this is what I have heard. It's so many great things that you have said. And I want to sort of dissect it them a little bit more, some of these scenarios that you experience because you put it so beautifully 
about how, you know, some of us get into a dark place and there's no system in place to to sort of help each other out of that when you're active because it's so frowned upon. Mental health is so frowned upon. I remember my episode with Kim from Invisible Combat and she was told we don't want any weak dogs in the military after she attempted suicide. You know, we don't, we don't have weak dogs in the army. So if you do that one more time, we're putting you out, right? That where is the compassion of that? Where is this girl was an MST survivor? This girl was going through a lot of things and, and tried to take her own life. And that was the response. Like to me, that is absolutely appalling. And so I, I love everything you said because it's so true and so needed to be said. And something needs to be done. And I love that you're coaching and you're working with veterans and you're doing that. So, but I want to go back. I want to go back to what you were talking about initially. After boot camp, you went into active duty and you ended up very early in your career being a survivor of MST. Correct. So what happened there? How how did this happen to you? Was it just being in the wrong place at the wrong time? Or were you targeted? Because I hear everything and it's just always, it never gets easier to hear. But I know that there are people out there that can identify and will be able to heal a little bit from your story. Yeah, I do share my MST story along with being sexually molested as a child. And so most cases... When you have a child who has been uh, violated, there's a, I think I saw some stats uh, a couple of years ago, so this could have changed by now, but it was a couple of years ago where it's like over 50% have increased risk of being assaulted again by the age 19 or 21. So if you were um, assaulted as a child or a young teenager, you have more you're more at risk for being assaulted again by age 21. And so I think when I joined the military, the way that they shaped it again, I had this duality that these people who also came from different parts of the world, different cultures couldn't possibly have been as bad as the ones that I experienced growing up as a civilian. So in this culture of honor, courage, and commitment that was drilled into us, I automatically thought that I could trust my fellow brothers in in arms, mainly because that's what they taught us. Like you, you trust them because they have your back. And as a, a E3 at the time, I wasn't young enough to drink, but everyone was doing it. That's what I always say, you know, but everyone was doing it. Well, you know, when you leave home for the first time, it's like college. When you're at A school, C school, it's like, honestly, military college. You've been, <laughs> you're being exposed to that. different things. You want to have sex. You want to experience your, your, your body in a, in a way that you're still, you're an adult, but you're just still learning. So for me, I think no one taught me how to handle myself what I should be doing as a young woman, not just Marine, but as a young woman, protecting myself from these men. Men who could get a little too handsy, a little too aggressive, okay? And you got to tell them, hey, partner, pump your brakes, okay? 
because they're going through their hormones and all of those things and they got to learn too. But for, for, for women, it's different because all the responsibility of making the right decision at the right time is put all on us. And really, it's just, oh, he's just being a guy, you know, Girl. forgive him. He's just being a guy. No, it's disgusting. It's disgusting that you would think that it's yes. okay mm-hmm. to gawk and mock and grab and pull and, you know, no, that's a no. So in in the military at the time, being young, our commander just had no zero tolerance for drinking. If you were caught drinking, you were going to get busted down. It doesn't matter what you were doing. And I think this guy on base who was already in service, but where we were going to school, there was uh, the side where it was already active duty. And then it was our school side because I was at C school. Still young, away from home. Broke up with my boyfriend at the time. And I just wanted to date. And he, he caught me at the uh, library. And I didn't, I didn't know enough about what date rape would look like. So in my mind, an aggressive rape, like how they show you on television, someone holds you down and just, you know, does everything to you against your will. But that wasn't the case here. He was very kind. He was very nice, soft-spoken, told me he was getting out soon and da 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 and he would love to take me out. And, and I was just like, well, you know, hey, I, I would love to go on a date. What, what young girl wouldn't want to go out on a date with a trusted uh, fellow Marine, you know? And he was a uh, rank higher than me, so I felt like he was responsible. And so we went on this date and he, was, he wasn't even handsy. He didn't do anything that I thought was, you know, hey, I need to get out of here. My red flags, my spider senses didn't go off until he asked me to go to his room. And I was like, well, we're not supposed to go in other people's room. He's like, well, that's school rules, right? And so this is active duty. When you're active duty, you can bring anyone into your room. So I was like, oh, okay, well, this is different because I'm not going into one of the students' rooms, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm like, okay, well, this is, we're on the other side. So I'm like, all right, this is cool. And in my mind, I was like, and I don't know if any other women out there can agree, but when you go on a date with a guy, you kind of already know how far you're going to go with him. (laughs) I certainly do. I vibe with that. Right? It's like, okay, Mm -hmm. I might let him hold my hand. I might kiss him at the end of the night because he is cute. (laughs) Right? It's like, okay. I thought, I was like, well, we're in this room, but there's an adjoining room. So I didn't feel like, okay, I was under attack. He was so sweet. I was like, oh, maybe we could make out. So that's where, in my mind, we could make out. And that would be fine with me. We were listening to music. He put on one of my favorite songs. And oh my gosh, he just was like the smooth operator Mm -hmm. here. Sounds like it. Right? And so then he brings out, he was like, would you like a drink? And so I'm like, oh, well, that would be fine. But just not a lot because I didn't want to get in trouble. Right. I was like, okay, MPs come or somebody checks and there's like breathalyzer. I'm thinking all kinds of stuff. So I'm like, well, not a lot because, and I'm going to go back to my reasoning, not to say it was great reasoning at the time. We're talking 18, 19. So great reasoning. But while I was home in the, in my culture and Caribbean culture, you, you get to sip rum. Like even underage, it's not like a big deal. 
So to me, I've, I had consumed alcohol before. So to me, I was like, well, just a little bit and I'm good. Like, I'm not going to fall out drunk just from a little drink. So he brings me this glass. I didn't see him pour it. He was kind of like off to the side. It was very cold. And when I drank it, it was just a, just a little bit of, I think it was Hennessy. And so as it was going down my throat, I was like, whoo, this is like super cold, but I, I barely could taste it. I was like, well, I'm good. And I, I kind of sat it down. And immediately I was woozy, like to the point where I, the room was spinning. And I was like, this, this is not normal. I've had a couple of drinks before, straight liquor before, and never had this experience. So I'm like, something's wrong. Something's wrong. And he goes in to kiss me. And I'm like, okay, let me get my wits about me. And he's kissing me. And then I kind of like pushed him back. And then once I pushed him back, it was kind of, I couldn't speak. I couldn't like actually verbalize, hey, I don't want to go further than what you're doing right now. And so as I pushed him back to try to kind of speak, I started to get my head was like a weight a ton. And all he did was just basically like, boom, push me over. And my head fell down to the bed. He immediately started pulling off my my pants and I'm trying to hold like my pants up like no uh this is not what I want to do I'm trying to hold my pants up but of course he's he just ripping them off and then he pulls off my panties and and he starts to go down on me and I'm like whoa this is not what I wanted so I try to push his head off but after that I kind of everything in the room went dark and it went from the light being on, the music was playing till I heard nothing. I couldn't speak. I couldn't raise my arms. He pulled me over to the next bed and just proceeded to have his way with me. And it, it went on all night. And the doors were opening back and forth. But I did not or could not tell if he was the same person. So I, I will never know that if it was the same person. When I woke up in the morning, and I remember somewhere in the middle of the night, he was still trying to be kind. Like he took me to the bathroom, you know, helped me wipe myself. And it was just like a lot of weird stuff going on, you know, brought me back to the bed. I barely could walk. And by the time we woke up in the morning, he was snuggled up next to me like <laughs> nothing was wrong. Right. And I was just like, I felt somewhere in me died the the fighter the girl that was in boot camp that was like listen you're not going to label me who I think I am and I had this chip on my shoulder and I'll punch you in the face if you thought for 2 seconds you were going to try to bring me down yeah that girl died i was fighting and then i couldn't fight anymore and somewhere in there just to mentally survive i mentally gave up fighting or like trying to push him off. And that's when he was able to do whatever he wanted to do. And in the morning when I woke up and he was snuggled up next to me, I kind of looked over and was like, I convinced myself that I chose this. I convinced myself. Oh, that I chose 
And so by me convincing myself that I chose it, everything was pretty much a blur. I just wanted to get dressed. I wanted to get out of there. I didn't accuse him of anything. I didn't say anything because number one, he knew and I knew that if I got caught as a student drinking with zero tolerance, I would get in trouble. And so I didn't say anything. He was like, I hope to see you again. And he'd still be in the same kind, nice, like we had fun, right? We, it was good. Oh my God. I was just like, maybe I did this to myself. Right. So I was walking home. He was like, let me walk you back. And I was like, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'll, I'll walk back. Why? Because what's going to happen to you walking back that he didn't already do? Where he's going to keep you safe? Oh yeah. my God. It was all a game. I think it was all a game. Little did I know about a week or two later, I spent like two months, two and a half months on station in my C-school. And so two weeks later, he he already, he discharged and he was gone. I never even really knew his last name. I don't remember his last name. I remember his first name, but I don't remember his last name. And the thing about it was he was, the whole time he was there, he kept stopping by, trying to see if I was okay. And just, I think he wanted to make sure, like I didn't catch on like, oh my gosh, I got raped. Yeah, for sure. For sure. That's a plot. That's a whole strategy that went on that night. And he even offered to pay my phone bill. And it was just a lot of like, you know, because I was like, know what you did. And I was like, you know, I was kind of like saying little things. He was like, he was like, no, you, me, we had a great time. No, we we had a date. Everything was cool. And so he was like, man, let me take care of your phone bill. Let me, you know, do these things for you. And, and in my mind, I was like, okay, I sold myself out somehow in the process of trying to convince myself, all right, well, this is what I wanted, I guess. You know, he was like making himself my boyfriend and never he made himself your boyfriend. Yeah. Like it was never heard from him again after he got out. But the whole two weeks he was like pressing me and, you know, trying to see how I was, but never asking for more sex. He just was like, hey, I'm here for you. And then I was just like, get away from uh-uh. me. No, that is some foul. Right? That is such like I have chills um, because you know how many male barracks rooms I was in. All my friends were guys, not all of them, but a lot of them. We were always hanging out in the male barracks with with my guy friends. I was, you know, nothing ever happened. They were just friends, right? Say, like you I said, too. Yeah, I already knew that we were never going to go any further. But yes. I hung out in those rooms. I hung out in the male barracks all the time. That's where most of my friends lived. As yeah. staff at Great Lakes. And, and I'm just, not going to say my other, my other brothers, like the ones I, I mean, I used to been able to just walk to the door in my underwear and my skivvy shirt. And they'd be like, hey, Simon, come on, are you ready? Let's go. And mm-hmm. we were that close. You know, I could have laid up yeah. in the bed with my, my guys. We watched TV. We went on vacations together. So there are men, I'm not saying each Man is no. a threat, and I know the difference. Mm-hmm. It's just that in that case, when I was a young woman, I did not see the signs. I did not take the precautions. My sister actually warned me about 
men in the military slipping Mickey's in your drink, making you paralyzed and those type Mm -hmm. of things. But she told it to me being at the club. She was like, don't take any water from anybody when you go Mm -hmm. out hanging out. So in my mind, again, I'm like, oh, we're on a date. So it's not like, you Mm -hmm. know, he was a real good predator. He was he he had a whole system in place for that. That is just one of the most I hear a lot of these stories and they, and like I said, they, they don't, I think maybe four out of five interviews I do have some type of harassment mm-hmm. or MST. Yes. And it's, it's really an alarming amount of these I'm stories. But that the VA now recognizes how MST, military sexual trauma is a huge problem in the military and should be compensated. And I know this is a veteran women's podcast, but the the rate at which men are being raped in the military has very yes, much yes. increased as well. And I actually overheard a testimony of a man who was a grunt. And when they go out to those grunt units, and I actually got it confirmed from another female who happened to be attached to a grunt unit, they were raping each other and or having sex with one another out there. You think about it. These men are out there for months at a time by themselves what happens in prison right what happens in prison when they are not able to actively express their uh, sexual desires with their opposite sex they turn on each other and in some cases i'm saying all grunt units are practicing that type of behavior but that's how this this type of stuff happened men even while i was out in iraq uh was they got assaulted when i went to okinawa a young man was assaulted in his barracks room by like three other Marines who all three of them raped him because oh they thought God. he was too soft or he was too feminine. What the fuck? I'm going to um, man, man, make him manly. Oh, and that's going like, to make him a man. Yeah. And so he, and he actually ended up being gay, but he didn't want them. Right. So he, right. Them uh, retaliation. It was a, it was a lot of um, those type of things. So women, <laughs> when I tell you to get through for the commander to know these type of things are happening in the command, they try to sweep it under the rug. They try to keep it hush. Of course. But what happens is the victim now becomes re-victimized when they don't get the support, when they're removed from the unit or the office because they stepped up and reported, now you're psychologically raping them. Absolutely. Psychologically harassing them. And Mm -hmm. that I think is more permanent and more damaging to someone's psyche than the actual act itself. I agree. A hundred, a hundred percent. And I can tell you from what I've learned from interviewing female veterans that that is a thousand percent the case Mm -hmm. and the struggle that they have to go through. A a woman could have been in one year and spend the next 25 years trying to heal from what happened to her and that one experience and then what happened after it. So it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. And I'm really glad that Things are starting to change. More needs to happen faster. Yeah, that's why I actually created this program, The Three Keys to Overcome Trauma, to bring up the conversation Mm -hmm. in a way where, number one, is palatable. I don't think people still are willing to hear the deep dark that happens 
when we talk about trauma. Seriously, people would turn it off. They don't want to deal with that kind of stuff. So creating a program or a way that these conversations can happen in a real and touching way is what we want to bring back to the military to humanize people. Because I think sometimes when they look at female Marines or women veterans, they don't see that aunt, mother, sister, you know, the, the, the person. And I think that's where we have the trouble because when you hear guys and they get super protective, if that was my sister, I would, I would just pummel the guy, right? Mm -hmm. They want to step up and defend anyone for their mother, wife, sister, you know, aunt, cousin. But when they look at their female counterpart, their sister in arms, it's like, hey, do you have that same protective spirit when it comes to your counterpart? And then if you do, how can you separate or mature, become mature enough to understand that certain behaviors that you probably would try at a bar, right, with some mm-hmm. girl that might want to be taken home that night. You can't do that in the office. It's called sexual harassment when you do that to your sister in arms. And so you got to there's a fine line between the human being or understanding that we are human beings first and foremost. We are women and we should be respected. And then, like, again, going against the grain with the culture of just male predominant bravado, you know, this 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 attitude that, yeah, she's either going to be a part of the guys. There's 10 guys in the office. You're that one or two females in the office. You have to join us. Well, no, it's a it's a mutual respect across the board. I don't want to come in the office and see a girl in a half thong shaking her behind on your computer at work. I don't want to see porn at work. And you should be reprimanded, reprimanded because you're like, shut that crap off. Like, what is wrong with you? You know, and and all the guys are circling around the laptop saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's 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 honestly disgusting. It's unprofessional. And to have that mentality to say, well, you know, this is cool. This is fine. We have to stop that because this is how it's a slippery slope. And this is how those conversations, that behavior turns into conversation. This turns into remarks, inappropriate remarks. And those inappropriate remarks act as permission in their mind. It's permission because you're going along with it. That is the culture of the environment of the command or the office. And then now they think they can touch you. And then now when when you try to retaliate, now you are against them and they're against you and everyone has to pick sides. And now the unit is split and it tears down morale. And this is the slippery slope that we're talking about. But if you stop and you think about this, would you want your sister, your aunt, your mother your cousin to be going through what you are putting this young woman through? Would you want them to then if that's a, that's a no, then you need to stop. And if it is a yes and you don't give a damn, then you really need to get counseling. You need help. Yep. 
Okay, so there's no way out of it. I was just giving you two options. <laughs> you know, there's no way out of that. Just giving you two options. Either you need help and to understand what's appropriate or you need to humanize and like re- go back to the basics of mutual respect and professionalism. Agreed. Agreed. I mean, there's so much we could like talk all afternoon about the things that needs to happen and strategies that the big military could put in place to help change this. But I agree. I think a lot of it too, it goes all the way back to when they first started letting women in the military. You would think that by now it would be completely different and it's shameful that it isn't. But I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it was sort of like a boys club. That stuff was okay. And once they let women in, they don't want to let go of the ability to be able to do that kind of stuff. And it's like, but sorry, you can't do that anymore because now it it would be like, you know, they come into the office and we have magic mic playing on the the screen and we're all like partying. They would feel really body shamed, number one, and really uncomfortable. Right. Right. And so it's the same if you switch it around. It's not a big concept to get, but for some reason, it's not trickling down through the ranks to make this change fast enough. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous, but I'm really glad you, you, um, you brought that up. I'm glad that because, you know, the the idea that a female marine to them was called a female mattress wow that you can lay on they used to make jokes and say that you know females were only let in the military for to boost morale come on mm-hmm. it's it's it is just that is just ah oh, it's disheartening and it's it angers me and anything that makes you angry in the world, that's your passion to change, mm-hmm. change it. And I think that is my experience and why I went through what I went through is like the, the patient doctor. The doctor can talk on his high and mighty horse if he's never gone through what the patient has gone through. But when the patient is the doctor and they said, you know what, I can sympathize. I understand exactly what you're going through. Now they have a deeper insight into helping that patient. And so for me, my experience going through what I went through in the military has given me a keen sense of solutions, a very great grounding to sympathize and relate to not only the survivor, but also the people in the environment because I lived it. I was a part of it. I knew the psychological uh, processing that happened when I was, you know, listening to some of these things. And not every time I spoke out when I was younger, I didn't say every single time, hey, this is inappropriate. I went along with some of this stuff too. Mm -hmm. And so, and what I had to change in my mind about it in order to stand up and be an example. And I knew I wouldn't make friends or I would make enemies by speaking out against it. And especially if you went along with it from before, but you have to be courageous enough to change. You have to be willing to do the right thing, even if you didn't always do the right thing. When you realize what the problem is you become the solution. And that means you're not always going to be popular, but I promise you this, 
you will make a difference in someone's life in a positive way when you are courageous enough to stand up for what you believe and do what is right, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the consequences. And when you do that, you'll be able to sleep at night. You'll be able to help other people to learn how to do it too. And the more of us that stand up and begin to speak out and do what is right, then the environment changes. Then we have true positive change. Absolutely. That's beautiful. Actually, very beautifully put because I I absolutely know that when you are that girl, you don't want to be that girl. But once you know better, you can do better. Before you know, what can you do? right? You start to get that internal, that cognitive dissonance, that internal dialogue within you, that feeling in your body that something ain't right. You're not feeling this. You you know you didn't like that joke, but you kept your mouth shut. I've done that oh, many times yes. when I was in. I mean, and I thought to myself, you know, that really didn't bother me. And then maybe it didn't bother me, but the girl next to me, maybe that bothered her. Bothered her. You know what I'm saying? So- yeah. Being aware of that and be and once you know better, like I said, you do better and you make that change. You can change at any given moment. Yeah. And once you do that and you make those choices, then we get to stick together and we get to help each other and create that wave of positive change. And I want to say thank you so much for sharing that story because I know it it it's a difficult one to share, but yours is really unique. It's the first that I've heard this kind of story on the show, which in six seasons. So, I mean, I think it's important for people to hear and for young girls that listen to this show as a way to determine what they're going to do, if they're going to go into the military or not, giving them the perspective of both good and bad stories of different things that can happen when you're serving as a female is the goal. A hundred percent. And so you sharing that story was really special. And I want to say thank you so much for that because that was a complete predatory strategy and one that people should be aware, whether you're in the military or not, that that happens, right? Even the way he was nice after it. And that is common though, because a predator often is, they sort of return to the scene of the crime and they want to gauge if you're going to sell them out or how things are. So there's a lot of psychological dynamics that are going on there with that kind of predatory behavior. And it needs to be exposed. Like, so more women know and the drink mentorship uh, mentorship yes. to help them to know what to look for in different scenarios yes yes, yeah. yes. because the, i mean this guy groomed you like yeah. but but he groomed you in a different way than a pedophile grooms or you right like he groomed you in a way of i like you i'm going to take you on a like date you. i'm going to treat you yeah. like a like all of this yeah. that make you think wow i really like this guy what girl wouldn't think that i was putting myself in your shoes and i was going along thinking how far i would have gone with the guy I like know. i was just there with you and to have that happen and the horror of not knowing if it was just him or if it was other people and just that, that happens, like that's a horrible thing to do to someone. And the fact that the guy was just following up and then was gone. And then, then you had to come to terms with and process all of that. I I have a question for you about that. Actually, I have so many questions, but I'm going to try, I'm (laughs) going to try to respect your time. Um, Did did you report? Did you ever report it? I didn't. And uh, going back to the story, the command was cracking down on people, uh, Marines who were drinking underage. Mm -hmm. 
I couldn't see myself. I chose my career again, going oh, back because you would have got go home of failure. Right. I, I, I didn't know how I could tell my mom and dad, oh, I got busted down for underage drinking. And that's what you call busted down, losing your rank. So that was part of the strategy too, right. getting you to you have, have a drink, drink underage so you couldn't report. couldn't report. And, you know, so that was once I made the decision to have a drink and I was thinking, oh, one drink, it's not going to be a yeah, problem. Yeah, that's going to be responsible. That's what he used to slip the, because mm-hmm. it could have been water. It could have been juice. Right. But then it would have been a greater risk of me actually reporting it. So I didn't report it because I didn't want to get in trouble. I was fearful. There was a story that, well, there was a case a couple of weeks prior when we got there of a girl in the barracks that reported a woman, a young woman. She wasn't a girl, a young woman reporting that she there was they were drinking in the room and she got gang raped by the other Marines. Well, they were reprimanded, yes, but she was also busted down. You gotta be kidding me. And then she had to do... This is uh, why I start cursing. Yes, (laughs) Alcohol Anonymous, and our instructors were telling us about this case. You know, so for me, it's kind of stuck in my head. I was like, wow, even if I were to report what, what he did, I would be left. He's getting out the military. I just started my career and I refuse to allow that situation to determine or dictate my future, even though subconsciously like a slow burner, it did. It actually affected me year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day. Slowly, I thought I made a great decision because I'm like, well, I'm not going to let this Take, take me down. I had been through too mm-hmm. much in my life to go home and saying that I'm not advancing in my career and not setting out doing the things that I said I was going to do. So in a way, it was stubborn of me to think that it didn't affect me. I shook it off. I was like, I'm going to repress this so I can push push on. That's what I did. I didn't know that I was doing the repression stuff. But that's what I did in order to um, move on. And I was just like, you know what? He's gone. I It happened. Nothing I can do about it. Let me move on. Well, I would have never known years later that I would be carrying such um, pains from this that I would want to commit suicide because I couldn't handle what happened to me that night. And it wasn't even the situation. It was what died inside of me, what I lost that girl, that person, that fighter inside of me. So slowly but surely, I allowed my self-esteem was affected and I did not have what it, I think it took to stand up against some of the racism that I faced, the sexism, the, um, you know, the, the, the sexual harassment. There were other, many other cases of sexual harassment that I personally experienced that I think Slowly but surely, I was just trying to curtail around it just like I did with that rape. It was the same pattern of psychological processing that I did. So anytime the situation would come up where I was being sexually harassed, I just wanted to survive it. Like, what could I do to shift this so where I wouldn't have to deal with it, but I can kind of get away from it? Do you know what I mean? And it never was resolved inside of me. It never got resolved because I never 
admitted that what was taken from me was actually taken. And, and, and because I refused to mentally and emotionally go through that pain, that I kept avoiding it. And I kept rationalizing why I shouldn't report this or why I should just say something, maybe threaten them, but I'm not going to follow through on that. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. kind of like, well, I said something. Well, that, that was good enough. It was never good enough. When you don't speak out for yourself in a way where people can hear you. And I'm talking about if you have to stand up and yell it from the rooftops until somebody hears you. If you're not willing to do that, then you are half fighting. You're half. That's half the battle. And so you 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 end up dying a little bit at a time when you you fight a little bit. And so that's where I think for me, when I finally recognized what was taken from me and I said, oh, I'm going to have to live now. I'm going to have to confront what happened to me all those years ago. And then every situation after that, I'm going to have to confront every situation after that and forgive myself for allowing me to struggle alone because that girl inside of me, what I realized was never truly, I didn't die inside. It was an opportunity for me to be reborn. And so once I took that opportunity to be reborn, I reinvented myself and was able to now communicate exactly what I experienced, how I experienced it, unapologetically, unashamed, and now I can advocate for others because I have dealt with that. And so that's a journey that I, I really wish I would have started sooner. But I think where I'm at right now in my life, moving into my early 40s, I don't care. I'm going to say it. I think I am doing... Long past my early 40s. <laughs> You know, I think now it's it's I'm in a a place where I can help others who want to know how to get to that place, who want to. You have to want to, too. That is really amazing words of wisdom. (laughs) I haven't even got to the advice yet. And you have been just dropping knowledge bombs through this whole interview. I'm so grateful for it. I just got to say, you know, that is such an incredibly powerful and moving story. And just as much as it's moving, you know, what you went through and how emotional and upsetting it was, and then the journey to heal afterwards, all of that, like every part of it just is a testimony to how brilliant you are and how how compassionate you are to take everything you know and help our veteran sisters and brothers to heal themselves and to, to actually go on to living a better life because we can't live our best life if we're still wounded and broken, right? So I, again, I can't thank you enough for sharing that. Um, I just have one more question about your active duty service, and yeah. then we'll talk about your transition out. So I want to talk about what happened in Iraq. Okay. What was that experience like for you? My goodness. So I always go back so I can go forward okay. and then I bring it back around. When I grew up in the hood, 
There was a lot of shootings. There were a lot of uh, violence. But I was very comfortable because you you get used to that type of environment. You know when you're in danger because you can kind of sense the time. Like mm-hmm. you can sense it in the air. And sometimes people react too late. And unfortunately, they lose their lives to gang violence or, you know, domestic violence or anything like that in the hood. It, it's a give or take. I mean, I mean, you can't make this stuff up like. It's like, what? So-and-so down the street that they're they're dead? How? Okay. So those stories happen and it it doesn't shock you because it could just be out of nowhere and and boom, something will happen. Well, when I went to Iraq, this was my first war deployment, going to war. I had deployed before, but it was like, you know, simple uh, UDPs or little workups. And then, of of course, being deployed to Japan. So this was my first war deployment. I didn't know what to expect. I was a young mom. I had a one and a half year old at the time. I have two sons, but um, he's a teenager now. At the time, he was one and a half. And I was going through postpartum. Didn't really understand that as well, especially for, you know, African melanated women who... In my culture, if you breastfed and you wanted to go to like Lamaze classes and things like that, you're being a white woman. Only rich people do that. Oh, girl. Us moms I hate that don't mentality. Do that, right? You don't go to mental health. That's for white people. You know, so it was kind of like, you know, I was going through what they called postpartum, not wanting to leave my child. And I already had went on a short deployment when he was like eight months old and came back. He was walking. I was missing a lot. They said I was going to Iraq for a whole year. I could not wrap my mind around that. I just, <laughs> when I say, I'm like, what kind of Marine were you? <laughs> Listen, we mothers got out there and there were some moms who just cried in the head. They were crying for their kids. Okay. My heart. I can't. I feel that. When they were done, they would dry their faces, put their freaking covers back on, get out of that head and march on. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was a couple of times when we first got out there, some of us would give each other hugs because we knew that was, it's a whole year away from your children. Some of the moms were like, woohoo, <laughs> this is a vacation <laughs> away from all my little crumbs. I also feel that. <laughs> <laughs> and they adjusted just fine. Hey, they're with their father or they're with their fathers. They're grandparents. I'm mm-hmm. good. I'm just going to do my job. A year will turn around real quick and I'll be back. I was on the other end. I was one of the moms who was holding one of the moms that was crying. Yeah, girl. And I couldn't cry because I was trying to be strong for them. And it got to the point where when I first got out there, I I wanted to I wanted to be with him. Well, they briefed us on a night mission that we would we would have to do. And I was the sergeant on on duty for this night mission, first time out. I was out there with this Lance Corporal who was a uh, a belligerent thing. You know, he got busted down already twice. He was older than me, 
but he had this understanding. Me and him, I said, listen, I'm not going to try to pretend like I'm the one who's most experienced here. This is my first tour. This is my first night mission. You've done several. So if you have any advice that you would like to give, he was older than me, but he, I was higher ranked than him. And once I gave him that speech and we, we had a kukumu, a clear, complete mutual understanding that we would make this mission and come home together, you know, get, go to Altakeda and come back after we drop off the secret gear. So we were cool and we got on the aircraft, these Marines, this was the last mission that they had for the night to get us over to TQ and I guess they wanted some kind of action or they wanted to get some. That's what they would call it. Get some. Oh, and so instead of taking the route that we were briefed on, that I was briefed on, they, they showed me the map where we're going. They decided to go into the hostile territory and fly low. I didn't know that's what they were doing. And so all of a sudden I'm hearing like, ping, 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 ping up under my boots. And I'm like, what in the heck is going on? Now we're with the cargo, we're with the secret gear and we have two 50 cals on each side. We have the eight gunners and then we have the uh, a pilot, the pilot, which was an officer and then uh, an enlisted senior um, enlisted. I forgot what they're called, but he came back and he was like, get your heads down. I'm like, what in the world is happening? I'm hearing popcorn popping off. What are we doing? And so the the young Lance Corporal, I mean, the older Lance Corporal looked at me and was like, get your head down, get your head down. So I'm like, what the hell? I'm looking at my weapon and I'm like, okay, we have live rounds on. I have live rounds. I have a, my M16. We're thousands... <laughs> of miles in the air. We're like the altitude in the air. And so I'm like, this M16, I'm an expert shooter, by the way. And so this M16, I already know it can't shoot back. Then I hear the 50 cal rack, clack, clack. And then boom, 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 Shells going off, hot rounds flying all over me. And um, in that moment, I said, I'm going to die here. Wow. I'm not going to see my son. This is this is where we end, you know. And I knew at that point, I just, I wanted to see him. I wanted to smell him. I wanted to hold him one last time. And I was thinking, what could I do to fight to get out of this? I felt helpless all over again, like being raped on that night. Jesus. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't. I had no control over my fate. Over I feel emotional. And so while I was contemplating the, the last memories and the moments that I had with my son, I felt a warm hand grab my hand. I mean, it was dead cold out there in in like maybe zero, 200. And I felt this warm hand and I looked over and it was the older, younger rank Lance Corporal that looked at me and said, it's going to be okay. And when I tell you, it felt like peace. 
felt like peace. Wow. And everything went dark, meaning I passed out. When I woke up, we were about to land. So we we all made it out. I knew I had changed. I knew I was different. I never felt that kind of life threat before, mm-hmm. especially in a helpless situation. I think if I was on the 50 cal, I would have been fine, but not being able to defend myself or fight back was what the Marine Corps trained me to do. That's what they trained us to do. So I felt ashamed that I was the sergeant on the mission and I passed out. Like I felt weak. I felt like I couldn't talk about it, that I failed my, the Marines and I failed myself. I felt like I didn't deserve to be a leader. There was another chip on my shoulder, <laughs> a huge one, one that broke me later along with the, the MST situation. And I was, I think, where I prided myself on the confidence that I had of wearing my uniform tight, shining my boots. Of course, they transferred over to the felt, you know, the soft boots, but when I first joined, it was, we spit shined our boots. Me too. And so, yeah, you know, that's the, mm-hmm. that's attention to detail. Girl, so I, I, I used to do everybody's. <laughs> you know? Oh my gosh. And so I, I think for me, something had died again. And this time I felt even more isolated because as a Marine, it's a certain persona that we have about ourselves. And it was a huge chink in my armor, I think. And so when I asked the, the older Lance Corporal, like, what happened? Like, what? I didn't even know I passed out. And I said, like, what happened? He was like, those MFs, they went the other way. I knew they were going to do that crap. They always do that last mission of the night. I was like, no, we got briefed on this. And he was like, no, they, that's, that's honestly, they always do that kind of crap. Oh my God. Wow. That's not surprising to me either though, oddly. Yeah. I was like, what in the world? Why would you do that on your own time? Right? Why in the hell would you put my life and my Marines life in danger? Because to them, we were cargo. Yeah. We had, they had the last um, mission of the night. They didn't get any action. So they were like, their officer thought he was doing a good thing for them, for mm-hmm. his Marines, mm-hmm. right? By giving them a little action to go home or go back to the tent with. And I'm like, were we not your Marines too? Yeah. Why would you make a call like that and put my life in danger like that? So now... Again, huge chip. So not only I was carrying shame, but I was also angry, really angry at why that situation had to happen. I would have never felt that shame if you would have went the right way. And I started making all these rational, you know, you know, rationalizing it again. And it built up a lot of resentment and broke the trust that I had for my leaders. And I started to see them in a different way. And while I was out there in Iraq, 
it was another officer who started following me around and other uh, female Marines who didn't want to report him. But it was my um, master sergeant that told me, hey, Taniki, you need to say something because he started showing up at the gym when I was walking at the chow hall. And you had a stalker? He was exposing himself oh. naked and ejaculating himself in front of his can. What we call a can is where everyone, where you slept. In front of his can, he would wait for you and then ejaculate butt naked. You know, I'm laughing. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> so in the first month I was there, I got, <laughs> I passed out on the aircraft on a night mission, came back, started getting stalked by this officer where apparently once he got court-martialed, we had to do a virtual. We were all still out in Iraq. They, the women were angry at me. My other Marines were angry Why? at me. Why? Because I, I called names. I'm like, remember I told you, like when you, you have to start speaking up, mm-hmm. but you're not always going to be popular. And it was like, well, it started where I was like, how come you're not going this way? I was walking with one of the female Marines and she was like, nah, I'm good. I, I, I don't go this way anymore. I was like, that's odd. Why, would why you- wouldn't she tell you why? Because it was already like two or three of them that was already in the know. And she didn't want to tell me because it was like spreading. It, it would have. No, spread. come on. You so, not enough to be like, hey, girl, we don't walk this way yeah, because right. there's a crazy ass motherfucker who <laughs> is jerking off in front of his can. So we don't go that way. The reason why they did not say is the reason that we already discussed. I don't want to keep repeating it, but it's the the atmosphere of it's fear of being the outsider female reporting things. Yes, that girl. Mm-hmm. So they didn't tell me, but you know, I walked in and I was like, what in the hell? And so I looked out the I got my can really quick. I looked out there and he was sure enough doing his thing. In front of the and so at first, I'm not gonna be 100 transparent. I was like, this dude is crazy. Yeah. So I didn't see the seriousness of it. I went as a joke to to back to work. Like, yo, guess what I just saw last night? <laughs> right? I, I could feel that. I feel like in the same situation, I would have yeah. been. I would have done it that way too. <laughs> right? Yeah. And I'm just like, yo, this. I, this guy and I gave all the gory details because we out in Iraq. We always need something to talk about. So I gave all the, the details and my master sergeant was like, that is disgusting. Right. So I'm just like, well, mm-hmm. look, I don't know who the guy is or whatever. Then a couple days later, he starts to follow me. Right. And maybe because Maybe he he misunderstood me peeking in the wind, like trying to see what he was doing. Maybe he thought I liked it oh. or whatever. But he started following me, showing up at the gym. And I was like, who are you? I didn't even recognize his face. He was like, you know who I am. He had this like creepy, oh, creepy, ew, little, ew. No. <laughs> creepy no. little ugly voice. Yuck. I'm grossed out. <laughs> and I'm just like, how did you get into the military? Like who's screaming? Really? So I was just like, hey, I'm just going to be honest. He looked kind of young, honestly. And I was like, hey, I'm going to just be honest with you. You need to stop what you're doing. Young Because you're going to get in trouble. So Mm -hmm. I'm I'm trying to help him, right? Not thinking this man has a mark 
on me, probably going to try to bear me out in the back with the, spider, with the camel spiders, right? And um, then he shows up again, and I see him at the chow hall following me with his creepy little smile. Oh, God. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I went back and told my master, I said, this guy is following me. He was like, tomorrow we got to report it, you know, because we were all like heading out. And so on my way back to the can, sure enough, he was there. But this time he was bare buck naked on the patio part. He wasn't even in his room. He kept the door open last time. But this time he was out in front with his rock hard. Okay. Wow. And I'm like, wow, he's really trying to get it. So I went around this time. I went around because I saw him from the the distance like there's the cans all the cans kind of make a a long pathway and his all the the cans it was like a horror movie right all the cans had dark that no one's lights were on but his light was on and his little naked body was in the door frame with his rock hard penis and he was just sitting there waiting on me i said oh god Mm-mm. no so I turned around, I went back and went and got my master sergeant. And I said, Master Sergeant, Master Sergeant, come, he's, come, come on. Come, come. So he's like, what, what, what? And I was like, can you walk me to my can? He's there, he's there. So he walks over and when the guy saw two, you know, the male, my master sergeant coming, he, he pulled himself in, you know, and, and, and closed the door and turned off his light. Did so the I'm, master sergeant see him? Oh yeah, he saw him. He saw oh. him. So I was like, he was like, Right away in the morning, we are going to report this dude. And and he didn't say anything to him because I don't know, he could have came out shooting. We all have live rounds out there. We don't know what's going on. Come to find out the command that this dude was in, he had four sexual assault and one rape charge on him. They sent him to Iraq. Because they tried to sweep it under the rug and get rid of him as a punishment for the trouble he was causing back in garrison. They had no choice but to put this man in jail. And everyone else that knew about it, they got in trouble. One, I think he had to resign. I mean, it's just like the judgment. You know, y'all put this man out there with live rounds when you knew he was sick. Okay, I wish I could say it was unbelievable. No, just, <laughs> and I was a part of the case and they I gave my testimony and all of that and they got him up out of there. But that was my other part of my experience in Iraq. And I actually don't ever tell that. I don't think I ever told that part. Um, just my the, what happened on the aircraft with the with the shooting, but never really told that part about that pervert in Iraq. He was an officer. And when I tell you, when we found out that he had other cases pending and they tried to look out for him, quote unquote, what about the crazy the guy? Victim? Yeah, they tried to look out for him and put him out there. And so it all came and he couldn't stop his behavior. You know, we talking he about was sick. He was sick. He was sick. And so. I'm glad he got the right one. Let me just put it that way. You know, somebody would be like, oh, you got the wrong one. No, he got the right one because mm-hmm. I sure did report him. But I think high insight from the very first time I should have 
again, you know, not understanding the seriousness of it, still just trying to go along with the culture of it. We already talked about that. Just knowing, um, you know, you have to put your foot down and, and, and really stand on the right side and not teeter the fence because he could have attacked me. He could have attacked one of the other female veterans, I mean, female Marines out there. And I could have been a day late, one day or one hour late from reporting him. And he was getting further and further. I mean, he was probably picking off his next victim, which probably would have been me if I didn't report him. And so, you know, you can't teeter on the fence with that. And so those are some of the lessons that I learned from that moment on. I knew I could not waver. I could not go along with, you know, some of the things that I was overhearing with some what the what the males would say and 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 also not do that with the females either. Cuz we can get kind of rowdy, you know. Hey, you know, I get it and no one says Oh, this is inappropriate when a guy walks by and it's like, oh, it's a confidence boost. How do you know? You don't. How do you know that he finds you attractive? Men don't like that when they're not attracted to you. They don't want to be like comments being put on them or whatever. They don't like that either. So my whole thing is, you know, just understanding the professionalism. And um, that's when I became, I think, very I don't like to use the word rigid because I understand situations and how they happen. I think I was more so, I rose my level of standard for Mm -hmm. how I would conduct myself and what I would stand for. And once I, yes, once I sat in that, I became very comfortable with speaking out and saying, okay, I don't have to be a jerk about it. I don't get an attitude. I put you in your place. You know, hey, I don't think that's appropriate. Let's cut that out, you know. I'm not going to walk away because I don't like the conversation. No, because that's still allowing the person to feel like it's okay. I'm going to tell you that's not okay. And that's enough. Normally they get it. They get it right off the bat if they're decent human beings. Absolutely. Sometimes they're just ignorant. Yeah. Like not ignorant yeah. in a rude way, but like yeah, ignorant but to the just, knowledge of they just they didn't think of it. Yeah. And I and a girl, my favorite thing, like you could quote me on saying, This is inappropriate, my kids. <laughs> like I will that is my first go-to line. Hey, this is inappropriate. You once you have those boundaries and for that quality of care for yourself, if you don't yeah. show up for yourself, which I think is the theme of this whole conversation. Yeah. It is the importance of showing up for yourself and building trust with yourself that you will advocate for yourself in any situation. And if you could do that as a Marine in those situations, then that is an inspiration for all of us to be able to show up for ourselves and trust ourselves that we know that we're going to hold our standards high, have our boundaries in place and demand the respect and the care from every single person in our life that we encounter. Yes. Right. And so by doing so, you allow them the opportunity to raise their standards as well. Beautiful. So it's a growing, it's an environmental change. It's an atmospheric shift that happens when you stand on your square. Girl. 
Okay. All right. <laughs> so let's talk about before we wrap it up, because we're gonna wrap it up soon. I just have one more question for you and then we'll start closing the show out. So tell me what your transition was like. You said you got medically retired. So I know that's how you got out of the military, but what was that transition like for you? Oh my goodness. My transition out of the military was a spinning wheel <laughs> of emotions. I Again, I was not ready to get out. So mentally, emotionally, I was not ready to get out logically because I am a very, I think, logical, analytical person. So when it makes sense, it's it's easier to accept. But when, when I had to transition because I wasn't done fulfilling what I felt like I could fulfill in the military, I was mourning the sergeant that I was. I didn't want to give it up just yet. I knew I needed to get out. That was clear. That was certain. I just wasn't ready. And so I felt like I was being forced out, pushed out. I blamed myself. I had a lot of self-loathing going on. They had me on different medications to help me to balance out my mental stability. I was in the hospital, in the psych ward. I, I was just a mess, like a total mess. When I got out the military without even a, so much as a goodbye. The command that I got out of, they treated me like, like literally like trash. I said, this is what I almost lost my life in Iraq. My fellow brothers and sisters treated me like garbage. They told me to get this piece of garbage out of my sight after he signed my discharge papers. And he, he also said, she's a piece of shit. Wow. <laughs> I want her out of my command. Yeah. Why? Because at that point when I went and almost committed suicide because of what I was dealing with, they threatened me when I said I wanted to start counseling. I was an instructor. So the very place that I went back to, I had the option of going to Hawaii or and getting deployed again about three or six months later. I had my son. I was a single mother. I could not make that decision. I, I was already away from him for a year. And then three months turnaround, I would be gone for another nine months. I was like, hell no, I'm not doing that. So I picked a, a command that was going to help me to get promoted, which is um, as an instructor with my MOS. And without realizing it, I went back to the very place that I was raped. Oh, yeah, I went back to that command. I didn't even realize it until I was about to check in and it all came flooding back. Remember I told you I suppressed it. A trigger. Yeah, it's some trigger. So when I came on the, and everything started to look familiar and I was like, and I saw the building right where it happened oh on the right side when I was checking into the command. And and then I saw a glimpse of it and then it, 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 I pushed it back down. So slowly and surely, because I was on the base, it started to come up again. And then being that I didn't know, understand what post-traumatic stress was mm-hmm. from combat, I started hearing the helicopter and like oh, seeing things. And like, right. I didn't know it was, it was certain things that looked like a video game. Because when I came back from Iraq, I got transferred completely to this new unit. And so... Needless to say, I was kind of already unraveling, but still trying to hold it together. And my command being that they, some of them never deployed ever. 
Mm-hmm. They didn't understand PTSD either. They didn't understand what I was going through, why I had su- such like severe memory loss. I couldn't remember combinations. As an aviation electronics countermeasure technician, I was really amazing at my job. I thought I was, as, at least for a tech. Don't ask me to run three miles straight, but you asked me to fix this electronics equipment and I could do that. And so in, in, in that command, they didn't have, I don't think they had the level of compassion, compassion for veteran, combat veterans. So when I told them, I was like, I'm having memory loss. They was like, you need to get your together. You know, you need to get your crap together. What's wrong with you? So I'm like, honestly, I don't know, but I'm going to go get some counseling. Started counseling. They threatened me to pull me away from the sailors and the Marines that we were teaching because they was like, we don't want any defectives. Wow. Any defectives around the students. So I was in fear that if I would have continued to go to counseling and do all these things, I would um, lose my job. You know, I would stop interacting with the Marines and the sailors. Like, I loved doing that. I was good at it. And so I didn't want that to stop. And so I kind of kept it on hush. What was happening to me, the nightmares. I was barely sleeping. I was sweating. Sometimes, you know, I would get maybe two, three hours of sleep and then have to go out there and run. (laughs) And I couldn't, I mean, my body was just beat down, exhausted. So uh, eventually the office was like, they, they isolated me, had told my commanding officer all these things that I was doing. Not to say they weren't doing things too, but the fact that it matters, nobody had my back. You know, when I had a class, and I had to go to my um, counseling, no one would pick up my class for me, even though there was like three or four of us in there. They were like, nope, that's your problem. Whereas if any of the other ones even just had to go home to help their wife, someone that was in the office would pick up their class until they got back, but they wouldn't do that for me. So it was kind of like, we don't care. You want to go to counseling, that's on you. Then you figure it out. So I didn't have that support to get better and do my job at the same time. You know, so it was kind of like, well, I'm falling apart. I'm I'm crying every night at at my house and I have a small child. He's now three. He's about to be three years old. And I, you know, I'm I'm when I tell you a mess started unraveling. And so my command, I went from a 300 PFT certificate. I got a NAM out of Iraq. For my work in my command. So I went from that type of Marine who was proud of what she did and it showed those accolades were there to now the reputation of this. I'm the only black veteran, a female Marine instructor in the command. There was one more that was on the other, far other side but I was the only one on my whole entire side. And so it was a lot of, you know, tension. I got a lot of racism. Like my officer told me to, why don't you stop eating fried chicken and watermelon? Wow. Okay. So that was the level of, you know, (laughs) tension, negativity that was in that office on top of me figuring out I had PTSD. So 
by the time I was discharged, they had me, they cleaned out a room next to a broom closet waiting for me to be medically discharged. Not so much as a thank you for your service. You endured a lot. And now you can go your way. They tried to, you know, do a lot of backhanded stuff. Like my gear got stolen out of my house um, in the back. And when I reported it, my command tried to tell the officer, call the officer at the unit and say, uh, to tell me, tell the officer that it wasn't stolen so they could bust me down. It was a lot oh. of backhanded stuff. And that's super shady. Thank goodness an Asian master sergeant who was in the legal in that unit had just gotten there and he stood up for me. He stuck up for me. It was the week I was supposed to discharge. He stuck up for me and he told the commanding officer in his face, you will let this Marine go. What you're doing is wrong. It is illegal. You sign this paperwork right now and let her go her way. She has served her time and now it is time for her to go on to be with her family. Leave this this Marine alone, you know? He wanted to just keep me there and figure out a way because they had gave me a very great rating. When you get medically discharged, you get a rate. um, Mm -hmm. And they were upset. They thought I should get out with nothing. Okay. And he wanted to use that legal situation where my stuff got stolen and uh, called all the pawn shops talking about she's the type of person. She'll pawn the stuff. I'm like, why would I pawn it? You know, yeah. So he was trying to get in cahoots with this this white officer. And thankfully, the guy came back and told me, hey, your command was calling me, pressuring me to not fill out this report for you. But I'm going to go ahead and do my job and fill out the report. And when that is crazy. Thank goodness, because with that, without that report, I wouldn't have been able to, um, he would have used that and said that I mishandled my stuff and then I would have lost my rating and I would have had to get out with nothing. And so that was the plot and the plan, but it didn't work. And I got out wounded, severely, just, just heartbroken about how I was treated and then not knowing how to help myself come out of what was actually physically happening to me. And so I was, I had my two kids, my fiance, who was also a recruiter. He had, he had a lot of stress on his plate being a recruiter. If anybody knows, I mean, (laughs) that's a job for, for you too. So I got out the military. I want to say just terribly broken and on, on all levels, just disappointed and, now, I had some really great friendships that I still hold to this day in the military, but it was something about that time and that season where I just couldn't speak. I couldn't reach out and cry out for help and say, hey, I need somebody to hug me now. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. ah, it was it was hard, but I eventually found a way to do that when I started coming out of my house more. It took me about two years. I wouldn't even go to the grocery store. I wouldn't. Um, I remember the first time I went to the grocery store and the doors, you know, when the, the air comes in and then mm-hmm. the doors open. 
sounded like the aircraft up in the sky. And I I was stuck right there in the middle with my screaming baby in the middle of Walmart. (laughs) I had to go. I had to go home. I couldn't even do the groceries. And so my my husband, my fiance at the time, he was struggling trying to figure it out too. He was in Iraq with me. So it was kind of like he saw me slowly, you know, the light dimming. And by the time I got out the military, it was completely just gone. And he was just like, he felt very helpless and I felt bad for him. And then I carried that guilt too. Like, why can't I get better for my family and my kids? Just trying to do everything they can, drawing me pictures. Mommy, we want you to get happy again. You know, and I would just, I know they were trying and I was just crying because I'm just like, I can't get happy. <laughs> you know, I'm trying yeah. to get happy. I just can't. And and so I felt like a failure as a mother. Um, it was, it was uh, a lot of emotions. And then whenever I felt better in one area, the other one would come up, you know. Then I would hear my 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 friends, my girlfriends in the in the military who had really great successful careers retiring and and got promoted. And it would just I would be so happy for them and just be hurting inside at the same time. Yeah. So that's why I think I could not really talk to anyone um, about what I was feeling until I got with an organization and they it was a, a wounded warrior project. And I think they truly helped me to feel like I didn't have to explain much. I just had to be here and just show up for me. And when that became okay, I started little by little building myself esteem back up by not just affirmations, but I needed little wins. And I call them little wins because man, when you can get a little win in, it feels big. So that's what I started to do in order to start my reinvention journey. I had to totally reinvent myself, use all the pain, all the struggle, all the things that I had gone through, good and bad, to make a new me. What did I see myself as? What could I do to offer the world now? Because, And what could I do to offer it to myself first? So those are the questions that I started asking myself. Then I started taking on personal challenges, i.e. if I don't feel like getting out of bed, I'm going to get out of bed and at least open the door. I'm going to close the door. I'm going to go back to bed. But this is like little things, little wins that I started to personally challenge myself with. And minute after minute, week after week, hour, I mean, it took me, I would say, uh, another, another two years to even begin to smile happy again. But it it was a hard road, but a road that I was gladly willing to do for my kids, for my husband, and for myself, and then for my community. So in, in a way, I found my why by just showing up for myself. I didn't have it all together at first, but as I continued to move forward day after day, then I started getting real brave and was like, I always wanted to open a business. I always wanted to uh, run a marathon. I did both. I always wanted to finish college. I did that too. 
I always wanted to uh, go on trips with my kids and, and have a great time. I'd started to do that. So everything that I thought about that I didn't think that I could do before, I started to do them and went out and personally challenged myself. I didn't care how it looked. I was just like, you know what? I don't care if I'm dead last on this marathon. I'm going to finish. And I wasn't dead last, by the way. <laughs> but I, it took me, I had about, I think, six more minutes left out of that seven-hour trek to get there. And I did that. I set out and I, and I made that goal and I accomplished it. And when I saw that I could do that, and I was like, what else can I do? I started asking those kinds of things. What else can you do, Taniki? <laughs> and um, I took it on as, you know, personal challenges to grow. So a lot of times people are like, well, wow, Taniki, you're so inspirational. You wrote this book. You are speaking at engagements. You're on major network television. I mean, I did. I was at Hollywood a couple of times, made a, some like really great connections in the entertainment and media, met a lot of, I mean, million dollar people that sitting at the table with people who are billionaires and felt comfortable sipping my, my, my drink and eating my buttered roll and having a great old conversation, feeling like, you know what, I belong here. And I also belong at a park sitting next to a veteran, talking to them about their life. It's, it's the balance that I Beautiful. started to create. And so it, when I became strong enough to show up for myself, all these possibilities started to open up and I didn't say no to them. I went for them. I stepped into them and with the expectation to learn something, it didn't have to be perfect. It didn't have to be absolutely amazing. I could get the feedback and someone say, oh my gosh, that was so great. And I could be critical on myself or just say, thank you. And I know I can do better next time. You know, it's, a, it's about a mentality. It's about speaking, you know, positivity into your life to manifest the experience that you want. And so for me, it took many years to get there, but now I'm finally in that space and I know how to stay there. I know how to maintain it. I know how to grow it. I know how to do it. And now it's to the point where after knowing how to do what I do well, to maintain a positive life, to grow that life. Now I know how to help others to do that as well. And that's the beautiful thing about my transition, that my story didn't end there where I tried to commit suicide. It, my story didn't end there when I was on the aircraft and I passed out. My story didn't end there when I was raped. My story didn't end there when I was abused as a child. My story began a certain way, but now I have the power and the fortitude and the will to move it forward to where now I can experience the life that I want and continue to write my story and reinvent myself over and over and over again just to accomplish that very thing, a beautiful, peace, and joyful life. Oh, girl, I got goosebumps because that it speaks to me because I feel exactly the same way. I'm at the same place. Yeah. And it just is an amazing thing that to be able to share that with my female veteran sisters and say, Hey, you can create the life of your dreams. You're never too old to do the things you always wanted to do 
You just put in the work into yourself and show up for yourself and manifest that peaceful, happy, joy-filled life. Life is meant to feel good. Go get it. Make it happen for you. And I got to tell you, your story is just amazing. It is so full of just growth and healing and overcoming that it really, I mean, I know I keep saying it's inspirational. I know everyone tells you that, but it is true. I mean, what else am I going to say? And um, it's been, I mean, it's been so many things like complex PTSD, like re-traumatizing and re-traumatizing and re-traumatizing, but you've come so far, you've healed so much and you show up for yourself. And that is the best example you could set for everyone is to say, Hey, this is how you can go through all of that and still show up for yourself. You can get there and be happy, wake up happy every day. That's my goal, right? That's what I do by the way. (laughs) So, and Oh, you know what else I love that you said? What? Little things that you can do this is what I teach in my coaching too, by the way. That's why I love that. It got me so excited. Those small wins, those little things that you can do, even if it's just getting out of bed, even as putting on day clothes, right? That's what it was for me once upon a time, getting out of my pajamas, okay? Putting on a face. People are like, you look, you got full face on at 9 a.m. Like, and you work from home. And I'm like, yeah, because there was a time for like 10 years that I didn't put a face on almost any day. And I enjoy it for me. I don't do it for anybody else. I do it for me. I go shopping. I get my nails done. I do take care of my hair. I make it look the way I want it to look for me because those are the small wins that I didn't take back in the day when I was very sick and dealing with my health and feeling like a failing mother and feeling like I couldn't get out of bed and feeling like I couldn't overcome life, that I was just going to have to die that way, you know, just miserable and unhappy. And coming from that and hearing your story and just knowing that you have gone through this and even on deeper levels have overcome such pain and, and such adversity. I mean, you know what, as a matter of fact, I always say that I don't know anyone who hasn't experienced some sort of bullying, harassment, MST, or homophobia. And I sort of, I feel like you witness all of that. In your military career. Yeah. Like, I mean, all of it. So yeah. this has been a really big story. Oh, and you. I am so glad that I got an exclusive from you. So thank you for that. <laughs> awesome. um, but I have one more question for you before we okay. wrap it up. Okay. You have given so many pearls, so many diamonds, <laughs> okay, through this interview that can help our sisters to thrive in life. But I always ask this. So I'm going to ask you, what advice would you give for our veteran sisters at this point, coming through everything and where you are at this stage in your life to help them thrive in theirs? I would say to be courageous in transparency. A lot of times people think that being transparent means being honest. And it's it's kind of two different things. You can be honest but it can still be cruel. When you're transparent, you want to give the full feeling and understanding of what you 
are thinking, where your emotions are at in that time, but also use the wisdom on how to formulate that so that people can actually understand you. A lot of times we come off as angry, brash, and we hurt others with our pain because we don't know how to communicate it. But if you're transparent and you say, you know what, I'm really angry right now. And I could say something that could possibly hurt someone. To be honest, this is how I feel. Yeah, but is it wise? Is it wise? And you always have to really think about what is your end goal in communicating your emotions? What's your end goal in communicating your thoughts? It's not all thoughts are meant to be said. Some things can be very permanently damaging when you say them, especially if you're going off of just your emotions. Just apologizing is not enough. You cannot unsay what you say. And so that in itself is using control, discipline, and being a leader by example. Because when you're transparent, you can say, I'm feeling a lot of things right now. I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling angry. I don't necessarily think that this conversation could be conducive to us coming together and understanding each other better. So give me a moment. And I promise you, if you give me this moment, I will come back in a better mindset to have this conversation with you. Take a pause. I think a lot of times we don't take a pause. And when you're talking about triggers, it is a knee-jerk reaction, but there are ways that you can overcome your trauma, master your emotions, build your emotional intelligence in such a way that it becomes just infectious in a positive way to your environment, the people around you. You'll begin to glow. You will begin to smile in a genuine way. And then when you are honest in your transparency, you'll know what to say, how to say it, and it'll be in partnership with your life goals, being that you want to succeed in every area of your life. And you can by being intentional, by elevating yourself through evaluation, and by obviously reversing those negative thoughts of yourself and others and show up in the conversation, be present and master those negative thoughts that hinder you from and build barriers that don't allow you to communicate with that person. And I think that's a, that's a, that's something that you truly want to hold on to. If there's a way to do it, well, there's one way to do it. I'm pretty sure there's several ways to do it, but the way that I do it, it's a, it's a process. And it's a lasting process that's only going to help you grow. So hopefully you stay connected with me. I can help in if you're willing to want to get that kind of deep, deep, deep help, right? We're talking about sister, sister coming together and bonding in a way where there is trust. You don't have to trust anybody. You don't. So when someone entrusts me, with their hurt, they entrust me with their pain. I am very, very, very particular about how I handle that. 
and I treat it as as sensitive and I honor that person for sharing what they, because they didn't have to do it and they're brave and they're courageous. So always be brave, always be courageous in your transparency because that is your first line of defense to heal, to win that victory of healing. Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And so with that, we are going to wrap it up. (laughs) And Taniki, tell us everywhere that we can find you. I'm going to give you a one-stop shop because we just did our website relaunch. I'm so excited. Can't wait to see. Yes, please check it out. It's www.jtinspired.com. You'll be able to find me all over social media, my podcast, Pursuing Straight Out the Box. You'll be able to to book some services if you'd like, help with uh, starting your own podcast or speaking um, business if you want to a little bit of advice on how to do that. If you have resume building that you need some help with, a fresh resume or just doing some touch-ups, you can hit us up on jtinspire.com. Amazing. Well, I have got to tell you, go and listen to that podcast. It is a good one. You will not regret it. Don't forget Kia sent you over there and um, check out all of this coaching and all the wonderful things that Taniki offers. She's amazing, as you heard. And I got to say, thank you so much for sharing so much of your time. I know you got kids, I got kids and we got to hang out and just have this chat. And it has been such an honor to hear your story and to spend this time with you. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Kia. Miss Kia Baker, you are the amazing woman that, I mean, an example to all of us. And I think that you having this platform and such a safe space for us female veterans, women veterans to share our stories is very powerful. Thank you for staying in the fight and allowing us a place to continue to be courageous. Mm, You bless me. And well, you know, with that, we're going to wrap it up. You know, I will put Taniki's contact information in the show notes so that you know exactly where to find her because I know that you'll be looking. Again, thank you for all the support and the donations. This is not about money, but I do appreciate it. So I need to say thank you for that. And there's so many more cool projects I have coming up for female veterans. I can't really talk about just yet, but stay tuned and thank you in advance for supporting those. So I love you guys. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. I'll talk to you next time.